As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And on today's episode, I had the pleasure to interview my friend Harley Finkelstein, COO of Shopify, Canadian entrepreneur, and just all-around great guy. We discussed his amazing journey from 2008, joining a small startup at Shopify, and then growing it to a publicly traded company with over 6,000 employees, $130 billion market cap, and over 1 million entrepreneurs operating stores on their platform. I was pretty blown away to learn how Shopify has maintained its culture over the last 14 years, its innovative and experimental edge even as they've achieved massive success and how they've always seemed to be way ahead of the curve when it comes to channel partnerships, technology, and new resources for its user base. And just to simply get to know Harley better, who is honestly a role model for me in how he carries himself and how he approaches his work. So please enjoy my conversation with Harley Finkelstein. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I know that you're, uh, you must be, you know, slammed the, 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 moment that we're in with with the pandemic and covid and just you know I was reading some of the stuff you've been you know saying in public recently in the interviews you've been doing just on the the decade that we jumped in terms of you know bringing 2030 to 2020 I imagine that you know has a direct impact on the amount of work that you have on a daily basis yeah you think about e-commerce so did, like online commerce as a percentage of total commerce went from something like 5% in 2008 till like 15% in 2018. So it took about 10 years to get there. And we've basically have gone from 15% uh, to about 25% in the last 10 or 12 weeks. So we've seen effectively a decade worth of conversion to digital commerce and retail um, in the last, you know, three, three, four months. And it's, it's been dramatic. And, and, and frankly, what we see is it's sort of a tale of two worlds. And you can use this lens for not just retail, but you can use it for entrepreneurship or business in general. You see a resiliency on one side and you see a reluctancy or, or a resistance on the other side. Some retailers and businesses have been resistant to change and they have floundered and they have, they've, they've suffered some really tough times. And others have just become incredibly resilient and have changed their business for the better indefinitely. 
Yeah, this is one of the things that uh, Simon Sinek was actually talking about on the podcast. Those that survive are the ones that can pivot their way out of it. It's just an incredible moment in time. And, and you know, we've been friends now for, I guess, close to a decade. You started Shopify 2008, correct? The story of the, of the company actually goes back even further. It goes back to uh, around 2005 or so. Uh, actually, 2004, Toby had moved from Germany to Canada uh, for the best reason possible because he met a girl uh, who's now his wife. Came to Canada as a new immigrant, didn't wasn't able to work because uh, he didn't have you know any type of uh, working papers, and so someone had told him that the only way he can make some money would be to start a business. And being a German immigrant coming to Canada, uh, presumably like <laughs> where it's pretty cold relative to where he comes from, he decided he wanted to sell snowboards on the internet. And when he began to look at how to sell a product online back in 2004 or so, there were really two ways to do so. Uh, one way was do you you would. You would Posted on a marketplace like an eBay or an Amazon or an Etsy or something like that, which it was inexpensive but did not allow you to build a real business. It, it, it was almost like you were renting customers from that marketplace. But the other way was you could build an online store. You could use SAP or Oracle or Magento or one of these sort of big enterprise pieces of software. That was like a million dollars to do. Mm-hmm. And so uh, disappointed uh, with that, uh, with those options, he just wrote a piece of software to sell his own snowboards and created this snowboard shop called Snow Devil. And very mm-hmm. quickly, he realized that a lot of people like me wanted to use the software to build their own businesses. My uh, sort of introduction to Toby was was actually through my becoming what 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 is now one of Shopify's first customers. I, I had a t-shirt shop that I launched around 2006. So uh, just to sort of jump around a little bit. So I was born in Montreal in Canada. I grew up in South Florida, Boca Raton. Uh, I went, went to went to school there uh, as a kid. And then because I was born in Montreal, my uh, sort of the, the equivalent of in-state tuition at, at McGill University was like $1,800 a year. Mm-hmm. Which was just incredibly, you know, from a, uh, a bang for buck perspective, was was amazing. So I ended up going to going to McGill for undergrad, and I was seventeen when I started and started a little t shirt business selling t shirts universities, and that was a way to support myself. And 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 at, at a certain point in undergrad, uh, a mentor of mine convinced me to go to law school, not to become a lawyer, but rather to become a better entrepreneur, to become an entrepreneur. He sort of looked at uh, law school as finishing school. Um, and, and actually, he was completely right about that. And this particular mentor just happened to be teaching at the University of Ottawa. So I applied to one school, moved to Ottawa, had no friends, met Toby. He was transitioning out of snowboards into software. And I said, hey, I'd love to start a t-shirt business that would run concurrently while I'm in school. And uh, I set up a, a, a t-shirt uh, shop online and 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 then realized there's no way I was going to practice law for more than, I think I lasted 10 months and then called Toby in 2008 and said, I'm done. I want to come join you and, and, and uh, a handful of other engineers. I, I was sort of the first non-engineer uh, and, and helped yeah. build this great company called Shopify. And that was, uh, that was over a decade ago. Law school is the finishing school. None of my mentors would have said that. I am not that type of entrepreneur because I'm not really that organized. You know, I, I'm very dependent on folks like yourself who can be a chief platform officer, a COO. I'm desperate for folks like that around me. Yeah. I'm curious, like, was that already, were these characteristics that have ended up, you know, leading you to be able to lead this organization through its stages of growth? Young Harley had a ton of energy um, and probably was a ball of untapped potential. I talk about my first real business being, you know, this t-shirt business at McGill uh, that made, you know, promotional t-shirts for universities, but that's not actually completely true. Um, the, the truth is my first business was a business I started back in probably 1996. I was, you know, 13 years old and I wanted to be a DJ. 
and I, I know you DJ, uh, and I know that, uh, or you, you, you're around DJs a lot, I should say. Uh, I actually, I, 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 I DJ the situational tunes. Okay. I'm a big playlist, playlist designer. Well, but, I, uh, I say that because I actually follow you yeah. on Spotify. And so I, 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 ah, I, there you go. I, I sort of, I wasn't sure if you, you would self-identify as a DJ or not, but you certainly are into music. I know Brett actually is yeah. a DJ now. Uh, you nailed it. And, and um, so I, I want to be a DJ. I thought it was a really cool thing to do. Like most other 13-year-old Jewish kids, I went to bar mitzvahs and I saw these DJs and I just thought they were the coolest thing in the world. Not because of they, they looked a certain way, but because it felt like they were um, creating energy from nothing. They were able to put on a particular sequence of songs and those sequence mm-hmm. of songs would lead to uh, a change, a dramatic change in energy that they can take someone, they can take 300 people that are sitting down in tuxedos having some rubber chicken at some you know, some hall um, or some synagogue and 10 minutes later can have every single person having a tie around their head, just freaking out and dancing and having the time of their life. And I thought that was such an interesting energy shift. That was such an interesting way to, uh, such an interesting thing to do. And, and I just wanted to be a DJ. So I I didn't, I called around a bunch of DJ companies and said, Hey, you know, like I'm 13 years old. I, I don't know much about DJing, but I'd like to learn. And of course they said, you know, get lost. Um, and so I decided that, um, I would start my own DJ company and I I should say one of the lenses that I I should tell you is that I'd always been very enterprising. Um, but one thing that my parents did, my parents didn't, didn't have very much money, but one thing my, my dad in particular did was every single crazy little business idea that I had, no matter how dumb it was, he would make me business cards with my name on it and that business name. And so from a very early age, I always felt like even though these things, some cases never made any money um, or they were not profitable, uh, my dad always made me feel like they were real. And so I started this DJ company and ended up that year moving from Montreal to, to South Florida and ended up DJing like 500 bar mitzvahs uh, between like 13 years old and 17 years old. And that was really my first sort of business. And it didn't make that much money. I think, you know, the equipment cost me a lot. I had to pay staff and stuff, but it was, it was a great mm-hmm. entrepreneurial experience. So I was always very entrepreneurial. And then when I got to McGill, it was 2001. My dad um, had just, my parents never had a lot, but they lost everything in, in, in the, uh, in sort of that, that sort of post 9-11 uh, couple of months. And mm-hmm. they had no money. My mom actually called and, and asked me to move back down to South Florida. And I, if any of you or any listeners have, have ever been to Montreal in the summertime, it's just the most amazing, magical place. It's sort of a mix of Europe and has this great kind of vibe to it. The French Canadian vibe is almost has a Latin feel to it. It's just it's an interesting mm. place. And I was not going to leave Montreal. And so I just told my mom that I will figure it out and I will support myself and I will help support them if I could. And I ended up building this T-shirt business, making T-shirts for um, universities around Canada. And so I, I don't think I was ever particularly organized, but I sort of always had this insatiable uh, growth mindset, this insatiable desire to learn, to build, to do stuff that I felt uh, a lot of meaning around. The reason that this 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 particular suggestion of going to law school was so interesting to me was because it, it's it's it actually, in hindsight, is exactly the advice I would give someone today. If someone today said what would prepare me to run a company of, of the size of Shopify? Shopify, you know, is, is, is almost a hundred billion dollar company, depending on what day you look. Um, so we were one of the largest companies, certainly one of the largest tech companies on the planet, but also one of the largest companies on the planet. I would say that law school was far more instructive and was far more valuable to me than something like, uh, I also went to business, I did a joint law MBA. Business school was not instructive, was not helpful. It was all mm-hmm. pedagogical. It was all case studies. But law school taught me how to write. It taught me how to think. It taught me how to debate. Something as simple as being able to read 
you know, a thousand pages and pick out the one single line that is the most important line. They call it the ratio descendente in, in sort of Latin, but that's the most important. That's the crux of the entire thing. That is a skill that I never learned really up until law school. And so uh, it was really valuable for me. Well, and we know so many stories of founders that don't have that skill set who, you know, uh, you know, lost on a technicality or, you know, signed a deal or negotiated something, but didn't do this type of review for themselves right. and ended up paying the price. So I imagine when you, you know, joined Shopify um, and in those early, early years and, you know, started, you know, helping lead the organization, I imagine that was a really valuable skill set to bring to the, the co-founders. In 2010, we raised our first round of financing. It was a Series A. It was led by Bessemer, um, by Jeremy Levine, who's still on our board, who's uh, one of the most important people um, in, in my life professionally. He's just been a huge mentor, and he's been a great board member for us. But we didn't have a CFO at that point, and uh, I think Toby and I sort of looked at the, the docs, and I think what law school gave me was it didn't necessarily give me a playbook on how to do a Series A financing, but it gave me the confidence that I would I'd be able to figure out, okay, what exactly is this? How do I, how, what is a liquidation preference? How do I look this up? How do I, how do I, how do I explain it in a way that makes, makes sense? And so, um, that I thought was really valuable and same sort of thing. I mean, the things that you know, we, we, we raised our series A in 2010, we took the company public, um, both in New York and Toronto, a dual listing in 2015. And now, you know, we're over 6,000 people. One of the things that I, I feel strongly about is, is that a company like Shopify or any high growth company, the people that are leading, have to requalify for their job every single year. And I think requalifying for your job every single year puts the onus on you as the individual that you just you, you got to always be better. If there is someone out there right now who's a better COO for Shopify, that person uh, deserves the job. But I, 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 want, I want the job, I, and, I, and I'm willing to requalify for the job every year so that there is no way uh, there is a better candidate out there than me. And, and the onus is on me to do that, not on Shopify to sift through or to vet me. And that's sort of I, I, what law school did for me was it, it gave me this, um, this curiosity about exploring things on a much deeper level. And, uh, and that's, it, it's been instrumental. And so I, I know that I'm, I'm sort of throwing shade a little bit at business school, but I just, especially in sort of a post-COVID world, especially when all these universities are going to a remote structure, I simply don't think that, I think you need to go to university or you need to go to school to take the skills out of it, not because mm. you were getting some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of degree or piece of paper. I just, that's just not that valuable anymore. Really, really appreciate you giving us that insight into the way that you think about this stuff. And to your point, you know, it's pretty rare where the founders and early operators of a, of a startup pre-seed are the same guys around the time of the Series B financing or C financing or the bigger later stage financings, let alone once it's a publicly traded company with you know, thousands and thousands of employees. I'm sure that there's been some major growing pains, but you know, talk us through that a little bit because I'm sure that you've learned a lot along the journey. Yeah, it's it, what's cool about being in a place. So I'm I'm 36 years old. I, I think you're around my age, maybe a couple of years younger, yep. older. Um, I'm 35. But, yeah. So um, I've spent over 10 years, over a decade at Shopify, which which is you know like almost a third of my life. Mm -hmm. And there's something about being at a particular place for that long. And one thing I think that it does allow for is 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 really really high levels of context. I mean, you you've been you founded, but also have been running Summit for I think a decade as well, maybe more, right? Since 2008, you guys started something like that? Well, and, and, and that's the counterpoint. I am still very involved in Summit and I have that cultural knowledge, but I am not the best guy to operate you know, a mountain development operation. So that's, that's why I'm so curious. Most of us who start these companies don't have the same skill sets to operate at scale 
Um, and that's something that gets lost. It's like as these companies scale and you add, you know, if you go from 10 to 50 people, you lose culture, let alone, you know, 50 to 5,000. So to have the founders in the positions, to have early leaders in the positions that you guys have, I'm certain has a huge impact on the culture. So you're absolutely right. So on the context side, one, it means that just like you with Summit, um, I have a really, really great understanding of every aspect of Shopify. And that is, so right now Shopify has, you know, we're, you know, over 6,000 people. We have over a million stores on the platform. If you were to mm -hmm. aggregate our stores just in the US, for example, Shopify, we're not a retailer, but if you pretend for a second that we are a retailer, we would be the second largest online retailer in America. There'd be Amazon and then Shopify. And then like after that, you'd see eBay and, and Best Buy and Home Depot and Walmart.com and all those. But Shopify is the second largest online retailer in aggregate. And I think what comes with that is we have a lot of different areas of our business. We have a, a capital business. We've given out like a, over a billion dollars worth of cash advances. We have a payments business. We have a logistics business, a shipping business. We have a, retail, a physical retail business, Shopify Point of Sale. And, and that's just a slice of it. One of the benefits of being at a place for a very long period of time, if, you, if you're curious about that place and you have a real... Um, and, you, and, 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 and that place is something that you deeply care about, as, as it is for me, and I know it is for you with Summit, you, you do get a benefit in that you, you sort of know exactly, you're able to navigate the company in a much more, uh, in a much better way, in a much more effective way. However, the key to it, I think, has always been know what our strengths are and know what our weaknesses are. We like to hire people at Shopify for their strengths, not their lack of weaknesses, which we've said publicly, and that's something that is, is fairly well known. So you often have these like strength finder diagrams where you sort of see, they kind of look like stars almost, like people are very strong here, but very weak in other places. We're okay with people having weaknesses. In fact, in some cases, big weaknesses, as long as our strengths are, are make them really, really unique. And so... Mm -hmm. That's something we, we, we use as a hiring uh, metric or hiring uh, vector. But we also think about it internally. I, I'm actually not a very organized, I'm not a detail-oriented person. I like the big picture. And so the people that work with me, I need them to be incredibly detail-oriented because that's just not my skill set. On the flip side, if there's a particular area of the business that I simply don't think I have requalified to run. Um, so if you take you know any any area of our business at the beginning, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a founder, I'm a startup guy. I love the early days of stuff. But a particular perspective, I need to hand that off to someone who's better suited for it. Um, we 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 um, one of the things that I am most proud of at Shopify is building Shopify Plus, which is our our enterprise mm -hmm. product. And we have you know everyone from from Kylie to Gymshark to Bombas to Allbirds to like a ton of the biggest DTC brands on the planet all use Shopify Plus. Um, mm -hmm. I was totally the right person to get that started, but at a particular point, running a two or three hundred you know person, effectively sales, marketing, and and enterprise product division wasn't for me. It's important, I think, that leaders know when they need to bring in someone else to to help run that, and that. That, I think, is just self-awareness. I think self-awareness is probably the most important thing of, um, at least for me, has been the most important skill set to develop over time. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. 
Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like when I look at, you know, the big sort of incumbent power players in any industry, typically really lack innovation. They can't really build like what's next, but they can they can copy it really fast. So if you look at like a Facebook and like, you know, the best features on Snapchat are going to be on Facebook as soon as they can do it, right? Or on Instagram or whatever. And, and you guys kept on succeeding. You kept on growing. You were, you, were, you were making money, being experimental, being sort of front of the marketplace. Uh, I want to know why. Talk to us a little bit about that. I would love to understand what separated Shopify to make it so this was the culture there. When you sort of look through the rearview mirror, it, things do a little bit, things do look uh, rosy, and and certainly building an, an app store and a, a partner program, um, you know, a decade ago turned out, turned out to be a really great idea um, for a bunch of reasons that we can get into. Um, but that actually came from a very simple thing, a very simple decision, which is that we did not want to build everything for everyone. We wanted to create mm-hmm. products that most people need most of the time. And back in 2010 or 2011, when really the partner program, we were just setting it up in the first place, we were building e-commerce software for small businesses that sold physical products online. And that was it. And so if you needed us to convert shoe sizes from American uh, sizes to European sizes, 
yeah, maybe that's something that, you know, some people need some of the time or some people need most of the time, but that's not what most people do. Most, most people, most of the time don't need that. And so mm-hmm. instead of actually building out every feature under the sun, we said, well, what if we did this? What if we said Shopify is going to provide the use case, the product market fit for 80% of what everybody needs that wants to sell a physical product online uh, in a small business context? And what if we allowed third parties to build that last 20%? What would happen? Well, the result of it is that one, these third parties can now build something and they can make real money. They can create, we can create more value for them than we capture for ourselves. Uh, I've, I've said this a bunch of times publicly, but you know, there's sort of that, that famous Bill Gates line, which is, you know, you've built a platform where you're able to create more value for the platform for the third parties and you capture for yourself. I mean, Shopify, you know, last year did a billion and a half dollars, but the ecosystem made close to $6 billion last year. And some of these are big companies, but a lot of them are, you know, two three single person shops that just build apps for Shopify. So we've always sort of took a bit of a more plat- platform approach to, to building software and, 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 and to building the product. And now the result of it is that no matter what your, ex- your use case is, you can get just about 100% product market fit on Shopify, regardless of what are the particular um, nuances of your business, because our 80% gives you coverage, but the other 20% really customizes it for you. And then as we sort of continued, it became clear that around 2013 that, okay, we're not really in the e-commerce business. We're actually in the commerce business. And then you have to sort of think, okay, what does the future of commerce look like? Is the future of commerce going to be some omni-channel? Is it going to be some sort of, um, you know, combination of online and offline? Uh, Our view was, no, actually, it's not going to be that. The the future of commerce is going to be retail everywhere. That in the future, Mm -hmm. unlike the past, the consumer is going to dictate to the retailer, the brand, or the cons- or the the business how they want to purchase. And if a consumer says, "I want to buy on Facebook or Instagram," that's the way you have to sell it. And if the consumer says, "I want to buy offline in a physical, beautiful, you know, downtown boutique," that's the way you have to sell it. And it might be online, and it may be on Pinterest or House or wherever. And so around 2013, our objective changed from building this this sort of being the best e-commerce uh, software for small businesses to really just being commerce software. And we began to sort of use the term retail operating system, that what if we were the world's first retail operating system? And then around 2014, 2015 came around sort of pre-IPO, something else happened, which was dramatic, which was that some of those businesses that started on Shopify at their mom's kitchen table, very, very small businesses in some cases, they grew to be category leaders. They grew to be the, the they were no longer the insurgents. They became the incumbents. Give, give, the, us, some exa- give us some examples. Yeah, this is sort of uh, Gymshark, Movement Watches, mm. um, these type of businesses that simply mm. almost overnight became truly leaders. Um, and uh, Allbirds and, and Bombas didn't come until a little bit later. Tommy John, Under, like, some of these businesses got really, really big on Shopify really, really quickly. Yeah. And the interesting part there, the, the insight was, if you think about software as an industry generally, what you tend to see is this. If you just take something like email marketing, when you sort of the prosumer starts using the BCC line in, in email, and then that prosumer becomes a small business, a very small business, a micro business, and they maybe start using something like MailChimp or they start using Constant Contact. Eventually, they may upgrade to Exact Target, and eventually they may use, they may use some sort of like Oracle version of that. Um, but there tends to be a transition or a graduation in software as you get bigger. What we encountered uh, sort of pre-IPO around 2013-14 was that the businesses that had been starting on Shopify, they were growing really, really big and they were not leaving the platform. Mm -hmm. 
And so again, there was a new thing to think about. There was a new um, a new piece of insight, which is, wait a second, maybe we're not just e-commerce software, we're commerce software. And maybe we're not just for small businesses, but maybe actually larger companies can use this as well. And that really was the formation of Shopify Plus. And, and, and Shopify Plus was really just created as a place for the most successful businesses to graduate to as they got really, really big. And, 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 and that was happening. But then something else happened, which is that a bunch of really large companies, uh, whether it's you know brands like Yeezy or it was Procter and Gamble or Unilever and Nestle or Heinz Ketchup um, mm-hmm. or Neutrogena, they began to come to Shopify Plus and say, "Hey, look, we don't want a six-month sales cycle. We don't want to spend fifteen million dollars. We just want to get something up right away that's super scalable, that's super beautiful, and we want to have modern technology." And so Shopify Plus became a landing pad for a lot of those companies. And, and some of them actually, uh, you know, when I, I met Blake from Tom's Shoes at, at, at a summit. And, and what Blake said to me was, and funny enough, Andy uh, from, from, um, uh, from Bonobos also said the same thing, that these were sort of uh, version one or, or sort of the, the first era, the first gen of DTC brands. And mm-hmm. Blake had no choice but to build custom software. Uh, so, did, so did Bonobos. Um, but what was happening was around 2015, these companies were like, why do I have 300 engineers when I can just use Shopify plus? And actually totally. Tom, so Tom shoes came over and Rebecca Minkoff came over and Steve Madden came over and Nicole Miller. And so that's a long answer to a very short question, but that sort of does paint the picture of why I think we've been able to innovate is because we just, we're always questioning past assumptions. Are we really e-commerce? What is commerce? Are we really small business? What do small businesses look like? And I think we've been able to do a pretty good job of, of staying ahead. Um, lots more to do, but that's sort of how we, we look at the world. You mentioned Blake, you mentioned Andy at Bonobos. Like these are companies that specialize in shoes and pants, not technology. Right. So here we are, like they they have to now make that jump to the next level of their software to empower their business. And they certainly aren't going to do it in-house. And if they do, it's going to slow them down tremendously. Whereas with you guys, it sounds like you the reason that you kept on innovating, the reason you kept on adding these partner programs and projects and you know support system, that ecosystem approach is because um, this is the life cycle of most. I just never knew that. That's amazing. Well, I mean, I, I think the contract we have with, like, n- not the legal contract, but but actually the um, the agreement we have with our merchants, these million stores, is that when you hear something that comes out in commerce, whether it's Facebook announcing shops, or it's Pinterest adding buyable pins, or it's Instagram doing um, you know direct purchase um, right on Instagram, uh, it that day you sh- if you're on Shopify. We have a responsibility to make sure that you're able to use that technology. That by, that by choosing Shopify, you will always ensure you have the most modern version of whatever commerce is, whether that's Apple Pay or Shopify Pay or it's Android Pay or for, for the accelerated checkout or it's cross-posting on different marketplaces or cross-posting. I mean, we just did it. We announced a deal a couple weeks ago with Walmart because Walmart.com is now allowing that. third party, right, which is really cool. Now, most of our stores on Shopify don't necessarily want or need to sell on Walmart.com, but there are thousands of stores that absolutely would love to cross-sell their products um, and, 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 and their brands on, on Walmart.com. And so five years ago or 10 years ago, that would have to be fly, them flying out to Bentonville, Arkansas and meeting a retail buyer. Now they don't have to do that. Now they using by being on Shopify through the Shopify dashboard, the admin, they can simply activate that channel and and and, and get um, hopefully get approved to, to cross sell. So that's the covenant we have with them, where which is I think why you've seen so many folks come over to us, um, and we wear that responsibility really heavily. That that that's that is what I think is 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 what makes us a good company, but it also means that it also, there's a great deal of responsibility when you take that on. And I think that's the reason why some of the biggest brands on the planet trust us. 
shifting gears here a little bit to talk a little bit more about you and a little bit more about you know your style leadership and both personally and professionally i'm sure it's felt inside your company as it is outside but like you're such a humble dude you and tobias are like so kind so nice so generous like in all your conversations, one would forget that you're running, you know, a hundred thirty billion dollar company with six thousand employees. And uh, I, I want to know, like, you know, do you have like a daily practice? Are you meditating? Like, how? And is this been an, is this been an active pursuit for you guys to not let you know the success of this go to your head, or is it just sort of your personalities? I mean, I think building a company like Shopify in Canada, um, I, I just, I got to spend a moment on, on sort of geography because I think, um, again, I sort of had a taste of both worlds, you know, born in Canada, uh, but I sort of feel like I spent my formative years in the US and, and Canada to me is, is Canada sort of like America for Europeans is kind of the best way that I can put it. I know you've spent some time up here in Toronto yeah. and other places, but, um, there is a little bit of a, um, one of the best parts of Canada is sort of this this modesty that is just in the air. That it is not cool to be boastful. It is not cool to uh, to kind of lose yourself in your own you know ego. Um, and I think now, by the way, that's not always a good thing either. Um, sometimes Canadians generally uh, are are overly humble. They don't you know our prime minister um, talks about that Canada needs more swagger. I think that's right. Mm-hmm. I think we do need more swagger. Um, you I, you know if I ask you to name five tech companies from Canada, you can name Shopify and maybe you'd say something like Nortel or BlackBerry which are both really not not around anymore. Um, We tend to be on the acquiring side of the the book, not the acquirers, which is because I think there's a little bit of an inferiority complex that exists up here. Um, But I didn't grow up here, and so I I have less of that, and Toby grew up in Germany, so he has less of that also. But in terms of keeping... keeping our focus, I think the best thing that, that certainly Toby and I would both agree on is um, our, our, our partners, our, our, our wives, um, our, our life partners have been incredibly instrumental in that because I've been with Lindsay since well before Shopify and, and Toby has been with Fiona for, for this, the, same, the same thing. So there is a little bit of, of, there are people around us that hold us accountable. There are some people that call us out on our, 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 our bullshit when, when that exists. Um, similar to you, I know you have a, a similar dynamic, but my best friends today are still the best friends that I had when I was a kid. Um, and and, and no matter you know how well I'm doing or how well the company is doing, they're still going to call me out on my <laughs> on my stuff. Um, but we've also, you know, Toby and I started seeing a coach back in 2011, or I would say, um, on on a recommendation of a of a mutual friend, and um, we ended up loving coaching so much that we ended up hiring the coach full time. Uh, his name was Cam, and then he came into Shopify, and we asked him to build a coaching practice. And so there are 16 or so full time coaches. Um, wow. on staff at Shopify. And we actually, we had a coach on staff before we had a CMO, I think even before we had a CFO potentially. So that sort of performance management growth, leadership growth thing is, is sort of embedded in our culture. But it's just, it's not the type of place where, you know, walking around um, like, you know, with, with, with a big head and walking around e-modest gets you very far. In fact, I think the anti- antibodies at Shopify sort of reject those things. They sort of push yeah. you out and and we, we don't necessarily, um, people have come into our company company that have had ridiculously impressive backgrounds and CVs and have built huge companies and made tons of money. And it doesn't always work out because sometimes they simply, um, they, they, they don't come in necessarily with the right curiosity. They don't come in as an anthropologist who kind of needs to look at Shopify and understand it before they can have an impact. And then on the sort of 
you know, mental health side of things, um, you know, frankly, it's, it's been tough for me. I'm a, you know, Tim Ferriss calls me a power extrovert. Uh, and I, I think that's probably accurate. I, I love being around people. That's where I get my energy on a, on almost every Friday night you can have, you can find my wife and I hosting, you know, Shabbat dinners at our, at our home with mm. tons and tons of friends. And, and that's just kind of how we've always lived. And, and it's been, I've had anxiety since I was a kid. I feel like my anxiety has been accelerated uh, far more since sort of COVID hit. And and I've just sort of been doubling down on the things that keep me grounded. And, and probably the most important thing, other than uh, just a daily 10-minute uh, insight timer uh, mindfulness practice, uh, has been time with the kids. Um, and mm-hmm. I have two daughters. Uh, Bailey's four and Zoe's one and a half. And and I've ske- I've rescheduled my life, and so I start my day, you know, walking the dog with the girls. I finish my day walking with the whole family. Um, I've tried to be very intentional about how to kind of make this all work because the truth is, I've been really lonely. I've been more lonely in the last three months than I have, you know, in any any time I can remember. Um, but I'm also talking. I mean, the reason that I, I'm I'm okay with talking about it on on on, on your podcast, Jeff, is that I, I think it's important that we all kind of share not just the highlight reels of what's going on, but also those tough days. Um, because I think totally. there's a little bit of bravado that happens, particularly in tech, um, and it's a little bit easier to be outside of the valley and outside of the states. But there's a bit of bravado that happens, um, and not every day I'm feeling my best. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of how we do it. And I think the other thing is, you know, just quite, taking you back to summit for a second. One of the reasons that I went to summit was surround myself with people that were better, smarter, faster than I was. <laughs> and that's what summit did for me for, for many, many years. It allowed me to sit at a table and me to ask, so like, you know, uh, who are you? What do you do? I'm, I'm Shep. Oh, you're, are you the Superman? Yes. I, like just having conversations like that are just so mind blowing. I remember, I remember meeting Robin Arzon at, at, uh, one of the summit at seas before Peloton had blown up and just hearing her story, her transition from law into, you know, like basically helping to curate a curriculum for this small company called called Peloton. That I think is so valuable. And I think a lot of us, despite my saying that my best friends are still most the best friends I had since I was a kid, my network, mm-hmm. the people that I, I I speak to on a daily basis, sort of these mentors in my life, um, one of them is the best father I've ever met. And I, I want to emulate the way he is a father. He's actually not very good at many other things, which he would admit to, but he's just the world's greatest dad. Uh, I have another yeah. friend who just really understands like really family dynamics really well, particularly when, you know, when, when money's involved and, and I really want to emulate the way he structured his family. And another one is just the most amazing, um, you know, philanthropist and, and loves to give his time and his money to charities and make a real impact. And so I've been able to curate a group of sort of mentors that I kind of swap in and out depending on what I'm focused on, who are yeah. so much better than I am at those things. And, um, and that really helps. I had a friend who gave me this this piece of advice and he was a very successful real estate developer and he had retired in his late 30s to spend time with his family and his friends and he uh, got presented this amazing opportunity to do this development that he had dreamed of and so he was coming back out of retirement and like raised more money and was like building the team and getting excited and uh, his wife pulled him aside and was just like, hey man, just so you know, no one that you love the most or that loves you the most will care or will love you any more or less based on your success or failure of this venture, right? And so having people in your life that aren't measuring you by that yardstick is just like so important. And I think for you guys, I don't even know if you ever like, you know, built that, a lot of us just have that, you know, around us, you know, and you desire it. At least I did. I, I had, you know, an ego. I wanted to feel special or valuable or successful or any of those that are looked at that way, you know, in my, in my twenties, of course. And so that's, that's a, that's a tough thing, right? Like it, it's tough. And, and, you know, I, I, uh, 
I grew up with two very loving parents, parents that also believed I can do anything. And I'm not sure coddling is the right word, but I was sort of always, I was, you know, I was really lucky that I had very supportive people around me. The problem yeah. was, um, like most of us when, you know, in my, in my early twenties, I kind of thought I knew what I was doing. I kind of thought, oh, I built this t-shirt business. I made a little bit of money and I did this other thing and I made some, you know, I got into law school and I did all these things and it was really cool. That's the value of, of surrounding yourself with people that are truly better than you, uh, in, 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 yeah. in a whole bunch of different categories, because you begin to, it, it's like, you know, it's, we use, a, we use the, um, the metaphor of boxes at Shopify that, um, there's yeah. sort of a series of boxes at the bottom of every box. You're shaky, you're uncertain. Things are not necessarily, um, you're not confident. And then eventually you get to the top of that next box, that box. And that's where you start, you begin to get that swagger. You begin to get confident, maybe even cocky. If you have people around you that reach their hand down and then bring you into that next box, even though the bottom of the next box, you're going to be incredibly shaky, that is super valuable. And um, I think that is the value of having, you know, a, a tribe or a community around you to, to kind of help you with, with that process. But I got to tell you, like I, um, the, my biggest challenge uh, when I first joined Shopify wasn't the work. It wasn't the company. It was myself. It was that I I didn't, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't self-aware. I didn't necessarily have this insatiable growth mentality or this curiosity. I felt like whatever I'd done, um, I was able to, you know, I was, I was proud of that, but I, I thought that that mattered. Um, and I didn't certainly did not have this idea that I'm going to have to requalify for the things that I currently have professionally every single year. Um, and I got to tell you, I'm a lot happier now. I'm a lot more mindful now. Uh, my relationships are richer now and I'm, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm a better human being now than I was then, and and the way it manifested itself was in the early days. I remember not wanting to hire anyone better than me because I thought that if I hired someone better than me, uh, it meant that I was less valuable or less valued. And it just that is the furthest thing from the truth. Now, like everyone who uh, who I've hired is so much better than me, and that makes me better, and that makes me very proud. The journey's been great. Art of the hustle. We'll be right back after this short break. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share 
other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT AT&T who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm curious, you know, for you now, what do you still do too much of? Oh, it's a good question. Um, I think I probably spend uh, too much. So it's funny if you sort of think about like work as being kind of three different um, categories, sort of um, in the weeds, um, kind of the middle work, and then sort of up top is kind of the large strategy stuff. I tend to kind of operate in either uh, the bottom or the top. I tend not to do the middle stuff. Um, and I probably should be a little more balanced, but I do get into the weeds sometimes on things that I just, I just, I care a lot about. Um, there are particular areas of Shopify that I'm so, um, maybe to, to the detriment of the group and, and maybe the detriment of me, I'm overly attached to. And I need folks to basically say, hey, look, I, I got this. Uh, and it's not to say, like, I know that's a sort of a, a prototypical you know thing where I'm, I'm too uh, I, I'm too focused none of that crap I just sometimes I get too far into uh, the weeds on something that I sort of forget the bigger picture and um, that's sort of where um, a curating my calendar in a way that actually allows me to have the highest impact that I think is is really important but one thing that I, I did do um, I, I brought some more things in my life that I just are just fun for me um, I still take calls with certain merchants that are thinking of migrating over or that are thinking of launching mm-hmm. on Shopify because what I realized was I, there are certain things I, I just I don't need to be involved in everything because there's no way to run a company at our scale if you're, if you're involved in too many things I become a bottleneck I never want to be a bottleneck but there are some things that are fun for me and the things that are and, and I, I believe that um, I believe that we all need to kind of figure out what those things are for you maybe it's something as simple as the music at an event for Summit and you may be like I know we have like the greatest music producers like on on retainer on standby like the most famous you know I think you guys basically have like quest love on retainer at Summit which is amazing but sometimes I bet you so like, you know I like let let Jeff, just deal with this because I just want to do this. I think it's important to to remain to have some fun and um, and not lose that sense of, of of fun and and so I allow myself um, the opportunity or or the the freedom to kind of get into the weeds sometimes. But I think I probably do it too much. My worry is like there's the funny the podcast called the Art of the Hustle. And that is such like a, you know, 20s mentality for me, right? Where it's like you hustle, hustle, hustle in terms of like the, the, the language that we're, that we're using to describe it. And, and there's a limitation to what that can get you, right? And then you have to gain wisdom, not from your experiences, but ideally from reflection. And I have an issue where I'll just end up scheduling my days so packed 
so repeatedly and not really save time for reflection when I'm in like a work mindset. And so that's what I'm trying to get more of for myself. And that leads me to my next question for you. You know, I want to know what do you want more of right now? Yeah, I am. I'm fairly type A, um, and I find, and I'm, I'm sort of incredibly goal oriented. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look for things right now that I actually can just, um, can just be at. So, um, I, I started running two years ago. I would always wanted to run, never figured out a way to run. It just, I was always sore. Like I would, I can cycle for, you know, 100 and 200 K, but I, I was never able to run. So I got a coach and began to start thinking about running and, and running technique. And then of course that always leads to the, uh, the next stage, which is, okay, when are we going to run a half marathon or when are we going to run a marathon? It's just like, I feel like I'm always in conversations with sort of my running group about that particular thing. And I actually decided to, um, to, to sit out and said, Hey, I'm not going to run a half marathon. I don't want to run a marathon. I just want to enjoy going for a run. I, you know, I, I bought the Garmin watch and I, I made sure that I was tracking everything on Strava. And I, you know, I was, I was being a really good type A entrepreneur and I just started enjoying it less. Um, or, or, you yeah. know, same thing with cooking. I, I got really into cooking a couple of years ago. My wife, uh, is a, is a food entrepreneur. She also, you know, is a, has been a fairly well-known blogger and the Canadian food scene for a long time. And so I was like, you know, what, I'm going to cook. And then it was a matter of like, I'm going to cook and I'm going to, I'm going to plate it in a particular way that just looks so amazing. And, and, and I stopped enjoying. So in the same way that I stopped enjoying running, once I started to think about the marathon or half marathon, I stopped enjoying cooking when I th- sort of felt that I'm doing it for uh, the destination. And some things I just want to enjoy the journey of. I know that sounds you know cliche, but some things like I just want to go out for a run sometimes. And if I run for 10 minutes or 30 minutes, uh, if I listen to music or a podcast, whatever it is, I just want to enjoy that. And right. um, I'm not necessarily, I'm not good at that. I'm actually really bad at that. Um, and so I'm intentionally now saying, I'm going to cook and like, if it looks great, whatever. If it doesn't look great, that's okay too. It'll be delicious and I'm going to enjoy the process and my family is going to absolutely love it. Being more mindful about that stuff, I think is really important. And because everything in my life is basically quantified, whether it's, you know, the stuff I'm doing at the office or it's the stuff that I'm doing, you know, uh, on, on sort of the, the investment side or on the, on the philanthropic side, it's all quantifiable. I want to have some stuff that is a little bit more, um, right-brained in my life. And and so I'm really struggling to kind of pull back from some of those things as much as possible. But one thing I did want to say, just to comment on, on the previous ch- uh, comment you made around sort of the art of the hustle is this. If you actually scroll back through my timeline for like three hours and you get to like 2013, you're gonna, you would see basically between 2011 and 2013, almost every single uh, tweet that I had ended with hashtag hustle. It was sort of a, it, it was a personal philosophy for me. Um, I learned it from 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 Gary V, and 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 um, I'd, I'd spend some time understanding his philosophy around you know perseverance and just you know running through walls at all costs. And it was just, it was an interesting kind of life philosophy for me. And actually, uh, Tina Eisenberg, uh, Swiss Miss, who has this great company called Tatley, she actually made me as a gift after sort of seeing this all. Um, all emerge. Um, she made me a gift business cards that that also doubled as a temporary tattoo that said hashtag hustle and 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 um, and if, again, I didn't know that yeah and 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 so I just I, I probably gave out those business cards at a bunch of summits um, and and at some point it became sort of um, synonymous with Harley at least at Shopify that you know Harley was kind of this hashtag hustle guy and one of the things I realized was people began to misinterpret it. And I actually realized that what was happening was um, people interpreted hashtag hustle as this kind of strange um, work hard mentality. They they there was no there was no room for nuance. There was no room for optimization. It was if you have to get something done, 
and it's going to take 100 phone calls, you do the 100 phone calls. And actually, that's never what I meant. What I meant by it was you actually figure out who are the three people who are most likely going to lead to uh, uh, an affirmative answer or, or, or a yes in the other line, and you call those three people. And so, uh, funny enough, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're, you're thinking about sort of the history of the term because at Shopify, I, I actually, it became, um, it became something that I actually regretted in introducing to the company. And so at some point, I almost had a funeral for it at, at, at the yeah. company. I, I did a, I gave a talk at a town hall and I said, I'm actually retiring hashtag hustle because it's been, it's been misinterpreted and it's not really just about working hard. It's also about working smart. It's about being strategic about certain things. It's about, um, you know, finding hacks and finding ways to kind of skip the queue. And, and um, so I'm, I'm just, I thought that was an interesting kind of segue. And what got you here won't get you there. It's funny. I'm sitting here at my desk in my office talking to you about it. And I have a memento mori skull sculpture that says, never put off tomorrow what you can do today. And it's the only words that are looking at me on my desk. And so here I am being like, yeah, man, you know, I really want more reflection. But the, 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 the mementos, the, uh, the totems that I have around me are still towards the temple of the hustle. Yeah. You know what and, I did? I actually, I, mean, cha- I, I changed the artifacts in the, in my office. We're not on video now, but if you were to see in my yeah. office here, I'm at my house, my artifacts change from like, you know, I, I had like a Morgan Stanley made like the skateboard, uh, sort of deal tombstone. We did a, a fundraise, um, post IPO and they made me sort of the deal t- tombstone was actually a skateboard cause they knew I skateboarded. And actually I used to have that up in my office and I've actually changed it now, um, with, with actually f- pictures that my kids have, have made for me so really like these I are like that. crayon drawings and honestly it makes me so much happier to have those in my office as my backdrop than something like uh these sort of 300 million dollar deal tombstones um so hey look i'm i'm going through what you're going through also which is that i i think we're all trying to figure out what what how we operate in this new world how we find time for mindfulness and how we find time for just being but it's difficult because you know to your point what got you here won't get you there what got us here is it's very much in our firmware. It's it's you know it, it's it's our um, it's not our prefrontal cortex working. It's our amygdala working in many cases. It's our lizard brain, and for a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening to it, our lizard brain is the reason that we got here, uh, and not not entirely, but some parts of it. Our desire, our ambition, our work ethic, and so it's very difficult to get to a particular point. And say, okay, now I'm going to stop. Now I really want to just double down on my mindfulness practice and my yoga, and I want to make sure that I. I, I you know, I'm able to be artsy and I want to be able to live in the moment. And it's just really difficult because we've been sort of, you know, we've, we've had hundreds of years of, 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 of breeding on this, but also yeah. for those entrepreneurs at some point you were doing everything yourself. And so at some point just deciding you're not going to do everything yourself, you're going to get out of the details or the weeds. It's just not an easy thing to do sometimes. Thank you for the time, Harley. Uh, I love you. You're incredible. You're such an amazing dude. You're such a like great, great person. And clearly, just like it for me, it it like you said, you know, coming to Summit and getting to meet people that are brilliant and wonderful people and wonderful entrepreneurs and you know, learning from them. You know, like you, I was you know, it was a decade ago, so I was in my early twenties, which means by definition, you pretty much don't know shit. And, you know, it, it, for, for me to, and, and for my partners to see what you guys have been able to do and, and how you carry yourselves and what you value has been really inspiring and really impactful for us. So thanks again for being on the podcast. Thanks everyone for listening. And Harley, man, keep rocking, dude. Oh, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.